Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. This is the weekly Facebook live stream and podcast where we take a look at issues, organizations, events, and people, specifically through the lens of the Green Party's principles of peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. On this week's program, we'll be speaking to longtime eco-socialist organizer, Green Party member Howie Hawkins, who is running for governor of New York on the Green Party ticket. Howie Hawkins, welcome to A Green Way Forward. Thanks for having me. So, Howie, I know you and have known you now for decades, but to allow folks who may not be familiar with you, I'm going to ask you to walk us through some of your social change history. Why do you do what you do? Tell us about Howie Hawkins, the human being. Well, I came up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 50s and 60s when the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and what we just called the movement, capital T, capital M, uh, was prominent. And for various reasons, I was very aware of civil rights, given my multicultural neighborhood and family. And so it was a live issue for me from a very early age. In fact, at age 12, I saw Ronald Reagan running around California uh, promoting a referendum on behalf of the Republican Party to repeal a fair housing law that had just passed. So I said, coming from a Republican family, I said, we're not for this party's not for civil rights anymore. What are the Democrats going to do? And they had a choice between seating the Mississippi Freedom Democrats or the Dixiecrats, the segregationist delegation. And they sat the segregationists. So at 12 years old, I'm saying, where's my party? And my party was the Peace and Freedom Party. 67, we started the registration drive. 68 got on a ballot. And peace in Vietnam, freedom was a civil rights slogan, and I've been committed to independent politics ever since then because when I see the major parties continue to promote militarism and global empire and neglect the needs of the people at home, I know we need a party for the people. So I've been involved in peace, labor, justice movements, environmental movements since the 60s, and uh, people ask me, okay, you've run for office a lot of times, you've never won. Come close, I got as high as 48% city council race. But what keeps me going, and the fact is, in all these movements, we started out as a tiny minority. The anti-Vietnam War movement in 66, 67, there weren't many of us. By after the Tet Offensive in 68, it flipped. The majority was with us, out of Vietnam, out now. The anti-nuclear power movement, uh, we went from 8% to 80% in two years when we started the occupations and bringing resolutions to town meetings in New Hampshire. The anti-apartheid movement, it took almost 10 years from the time of the Soweto massacre of 600 school children striking for their rights in Soweto, just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa, to the explosion of shanty towns across the campuses, and then the passage of the sanctions bill. Reagan vetoed it, but Congress overrode it you know, right down to getting a ban on fracking here in New York State. We've been in the minority, and we've uh, won over a majority and got some changes made. <clears throat> so that's what keeps so me going. Focus, and- Howie, I want to focus on, on two things. Uh, one, a, a definition, your uh, understanding, description of what you mean when you say independent politics, and two, the kind of movement work that it takes to go from that out, uh, outspoken minority to actually major cultural shifts. So I know those are related, but they're separate. I want to dive in a little bit and push you 
describe to me and to the viewers, listeners, when you say independent politics, what do you mean? I mean class independence of the popular classes, the working class, which includes people that want to be working, the poor, and the middle class people, particularly those that are being pushed down the class structure, like teachers and nurses and even doctors by corporate society that uh, doesn't let them be independent professionals but adapts them to bureaucracies. All these people need a party that represents them. What we have is a two-party system. Both parties are funded by the very wealthy. A lot of those very wealthy people give to both parties, so no matter which party's in power, they have friends in high places. We have a party system, like uh, old boss Tweed used to say, you can vote for anybody you want as long as I get to pick the candidates. And that's how I ran the Democratic machine in the 19th century. But today we have the money primary before we get to the voting primary. And so candidates have to appeal to the rich to invest in their campaigns. And the rich invest, and you get a selection of candidates in the primary. The one with the most money often wins. And then you go to the general election, and the money primary has already picked the candidates for us. So we get to pick between two candidates in the major parties that don't represent us. So independence means we have our own ballot line, our own identity, our own platform, and we're an alternative in opposition to the two-party system of corporate rule. So it's an issue of class independence. We don't take money from the corporate interests. we got to fund it ourselves. And uh, so a lot of small donations from lots of people. That's independent politics. And tell me a little bit about what you and your campaign experienced in New York. I mean, there was a vibrant uh, challenge by liberal progressive Cynthia Nixon. Tell me what you experienced and what the Green Party and independent politics experienced in the most recent uh, primary in the state of New York. Well, for my campaign, it was a lot of frustration because Cynthia Nixon didn't go far enough on a lot of issues. And if we'd have been part of the narrative in the media and part of the one debate that uh, Nixon and Cuomo had, the governor, uh, we would have clarified some issues. One of them is the rent is too damn high, as we have a slogan here in New York, and uh, it's really pushing people out of their homes. Homelessness has exploded under Governor Cuomo, who used to be the HUD secretary under the Clinton administration. And Nixon called for expanding rent control authority statewide, but didn't call, as housing activists have been calling forever, to repeal what's called the Erstad Law, which has the state legislature voting on rent regulations in New York City and some other communities where there are rent regulations. And without that local control, what we've got is conservative Republicans representing farmers upstate voting on rent regulations in New York City. It makes no sense. It's undemocratic. And uh, somehow that didn't get in our platform. Of more concern to me even than that, which is a big issue, is the climate action uh, bill that she was behind, which actually codified Cuomo's energy policy, which is totally inadequate to the climate emergency we face. It wanted to get to 100 percent reduction in greenhouse gases by 2050. That's too late. It says in the bill our goal is 450 parts per million carbon equivalents, which was what the fourth uh, International Panel on Climate Change recommended in 2007, but the science since then has said, no, that won't keep us below a rise of two degrees Celsius in global temperatures, which is seen as the tipping point beyond which the process is a runaway global warming and a climate disaster. 
Um, we had an alternative bill, which comes out of my last two campaigns, 2010 and 2014, to get to 100 percent clean energy by 2030. And because we got 5 percent in 2014, the legislature paid attention to us, and we helped draft the bill. Much stronger bill. It's got benchmarks. It's got a structure for making the planning to reach that goal by 2030. And, you know, all I could do is scream at the TV saying, you got the wrong bill, you know, Miss Nixon. And so that was what all I can say is it was frustrating. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're speaking with Howie Hawkins, Green Party of New York State candidate for governor, longtime eco-socialist, longtime social change agent. Uh, Howie, you also talked about the history that you've experienced having the movement actually successfully shift policy, starting out small and making victories, literally changing policy. I'd like you to walk through your theory of change. How was it possible for the Clamshell Alliance, for example, to start as a small minority and end up changing the public perception and comments and literally actually win the day? Uh, I was a student activist during the anti-apartheid struggle and and witnessed that. Uh, Tell us your theory of change about uh, and specifically how independent politics plays a role in that. Okay, well, I think that a lot of times there's kind of a molecular movement from below, and it's almost subconscious. Uh, when I think of the Vietnam War, I think looking at you know my community, there are a lot of auto workers, very patriotic, and but some of their kids are going over to Vietnam, getting shot up, coming back, or even killed, and coming back injured. And I think they were getting doubts, and they were listening to the anti-war people and thinking, well, they are making sense but they wouldn't admit it to each other. And after the Tet Offensive, Walter Cronkite, you know, saying he didn't think we could win there, uh, suddenly those guys flipped. I mean, I think it just was like they were ready. They'd already kind of made up their mind. They might not even have recognized it themselves. So that's to say when you're out there talking to people, a lot of times you'll get the hardest arguments from the people that are just trying to defend their position, and you're really getting through to them. And uh, you may get through to them, and they won't admit it to you, but down the road they will. But every movement's different. In, in the case of the Clamshell Alliance, very conservative Republican state at that time, New Hampshire. And we did direct action, occupied the Seabrook nuclear power plant site with over 1,400 people. We were locked up in National Guard armies for, for 10 days. It got attention nationwide. We got their attention. But then what we did is we took resolutions to town meetings. These are direct democracies at the grassroots. In New Hampshire, 15 people can sign a petition, and you get a warrant article, an agenda item. And we went there and said to these Republicans, uh, they're going to pay for this before it's even built and working. It's called Construction Works in Progress. And we convinced these Republicans who thought, you know, we were kind of crazy to, uh, you know, be doing this illegal activity of occupying a nuclear power plant site, but they had to say, you're right. You know, we shouldn't be paying for this thing before it even works. And before that, we had done resolutions around the seacoast where this was being built because the construction was going to draw down the water table and people's wells were going to go dry. So we took it to the people, and in that setting where we had direct democracy, we were able to win people over. So in two years, we went from 8% to 80% of opposition to that power plant. And we stopped construction works in progress, which stopped one of the two proposed nuclear sites at, uh, at Seabrook. The other one finally got built, took the 90s. The Wall Street really decided they had to make an example there. 
Um, so uh, each each movement's a little different, but the the thing I want to emphasize is that when you're out there and people either are saying, like in the anti-apartheid movement, you're right, it's terrible, but they'll never divest, we'll never have sanctions, give up, go home, and they're with you. And then something happens, like the shantytown movements across the campuses, and like in my college, Dartmouth College, I had, I was nine years past my class, but I was a carpenter. We prefab the shanties, dropped them down before they could stop us, and this is a place where a right-wing newspaper called the Dartmouth Review, related to the National Review, was had really intimidated the liberals. And when those shanties went up, they came out of the woodwork. We went from, you know, 10 or 12 people who had been working on this issue to about 400 people dancing around these shanty towns. It just changed the whole climate. So social change happens in steps like that, jumps. You're pushing against the wall, and suddenly it opens up. Um, those are... Some of the uh, things I think people ought to think about when they get discouraged. Um, and, you know, the other thing I would say in terms of really changing capitalist society, which is not democratic, capitalism concentrates wealth in the hands of a few, and that concentrated economic power translates into concentrated political power. So public policy doesn't trans, I mean, public opinion doesn't translate into public policy. And that's where we've got to organize the immense majority, that's the working class and oppressed people, and find a way to get us together. And the, the thing we've got to do is we've got to deal with the different specific oppressions that oppressed people face, racism, sexism, all the negativisms. And we've got to unite them on a class basis, too, because so, that's a common interest for, for most working people and oppressed people. And that's how you get the numbers you need to make real change. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. If you are watching live on Facebook and you want to join the conversation, either make a comment or ask a question of Howie, please do so in the comments. Executive producer Michael O'Neill will be harvesting those. You know, uh, Howie, one of the things that I really appreciate, you have consistently called for building a broad-based mass movement of people around the issue of class without sacrificing an analysis around white supremacy or race or patriarchy uh, and gender roles. So I do want to acknowledge and appreciate you for the kind of consistency that you've shown and hope that it may well be uh, the same kind of consistency that Bernie Sanders uh, had had with some of his rhetoric and language, because I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we're at, in one of those liminal spaces where there is a possibility for the kind of major shift where you go from 8 to 80 uh, percent. Are you sensing the same thing or do you think I'm being overly optimistic? Well, I think the pieces are there to make that leap. Um, you look at the support for the two parties. It's it's diminishing for both parties. Uh, there are more people identify as independents than ever before. The Gallup poll that asks people if they want a third major party has never had higher numbers than it does now. It's over 60%. You look at the public opinion polls on issues that we're pushing, like uh, national health insurance or a single-payer system, uh, a job guarantee. If you can't work and if you can't find work in the private sector, the government should be the employer of last resort, putting you to work providing services or public works infrastructure that are needed, the community is defined, uh, Social Security should be protected, 
and in fact expanded. You go through the polls on all these things, and the people are way to the left of the two major parties. They're with us. So I think all the elements are there. It's one of these cases where at some point, you know, the Greens are going to win some significant races, and suddenly we won't be the spoilers. <laughs> we'll be the ones with the real answers, and people will come to us. Well, I'll tell you how we, from my assessment and my analysis of how social change works and how revolutionary processes work, uh, you know, the, everything gets worse from here, which means that we will have more and more opportunities to have those kind of flashes. I do want to point out that we've had several people write in, so let me catch some of those. Terry writes in to say, Howie, good luck with your candidacy. I wish we in Ohio could have stopped fracking like y'all did in New York. Best wishes from Ohio. Uh, you want to tell us the story of ending fracking in New York in a nutshell? Sure. Uh, this actually came from uh, Greens in the southern tier of New York, which was ground zero. We had a Green town board member named Mary Jo Long, a lawyer who knew how to read these land contracts, you know, to get the royalties from the natural gas and saw that people were being put in a bad position. It sounded better than it really was. And they're also strong environmentalists. They were not only worried about the water and the truck traffic and uh, the other problems, they were worried about the climate because we got to stop burning fossil fuels. So they said, while most of the environmental movement, the big green groups were saying natural gas is the bridge to renewable future. We use it while we get off coal. And then the more uh, stronger environmental groups were saying, well, let's have a moratorium and study the water impact. We came forward, I ran in 2010, saying we need to ban fracking, and it caught on. So the environmental groups that had petitions for moratorium before that run, uh, afterwards they switched them right away to a ban because it was clear it was popular. And then uh, some of these groups got funded, and we dogged Cuomo and demonstrated for the next four years. And then in 2014... Uh, there was a Democratic challenge to Cuomo that got nearly 200,000 votes. Zephyr Teachout, she you know, gave voice to the uh, fracking ban movement, and then I carried the torch into the general, and we got about as many votes, and Cuomo couldn't take us for granted. And uh, you know, protect his left flank, he adopted some of our demands. Among them was the fracking ban. How about that? Another example that power concedes nothing without a demand. Uh, yeah, John writes yeah. in to ask, Howie, what do you think are the best methods for recruiting new Green Party members? Talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, getting their contact information, continuing the communication, and, you know, then working with those people that want to be active. And it, you really got to be responsible about following up. And then when you have meetings, don't bore them to death with business. Uh, you know, when you need to bring business questions, decisions to the whole body, do that, but delegate some things to people that you can just carry out tasks or make administrative decisions, you know, a coordinating committee. And then use the meetings for social and educational purposes and lots of time for discussion so that people feel they're part of the process. And, uh, you know, when I talked about independent politics, class independence being key, you know, we don't have to have the exact correct program What's important is that we're talking among ourselves and working it out, independent of these corporate influences that you end up in situations where the money does the talking. We have a party here in New York called the Working Families Party. They ran a challenge to Cynthia Nixon. She lost. And now they're debating whether to endorse Andrew Cuomo for a third time, which their voters hate. 
but their leaders insist upon because they're dependent on funding from uh, other interests that want Cuomo in office. And uh, this includes some unions who are conservative and just want to back the winners so they think they have a door open. Um, and so the leaders are saying we lose our funding base if we do the right thing politically. And uh, that's the kind of problem that we have to avoid when we're organizing. We need That's why we need to be have our class independence and a mass base of and our funders political and members. Independence. Yeah. Uh, Jacqueline writes in to say, I hope you defeat corrupt Cuomo. Catherine writes in, uh, in response to your uh, comment about independence growing, she says, the problem is that independents don't know where to go. What would you say to Catherine and others like her? Well, it's clear here in New York that the Green Party's where to go. Green Party has ballot lines in, what, 24 states, 22, 23, in that number. They're on the ballot. Um, that's where I think people ought to go. It's the only party on the left that has sustained itself for a few decades, got a foothold in the political system, and I think has great candidates in a lot of places around the country. That's where people need to go and put their energy and their organizing skills, and, and we need to build it. There is a place. There is. And I thank you, Howie, for that. And I want to just remind viewers and listeners, you know, it's like the Green Party uh, has been growing. And if you take a look at the voting system that forces people to vote against candidates that they hate the most rather than allow them to vote for the ones that they want, if you look at the campaign financing system that basically ensures the money primary that Howie has talked about, if you take a look at the restrictions on access to the ballot and access to the debates. If you look at all the structural barriers that are put in front of the Green Party, I think it's important that we recognize something. This system is not merely designed to prevent the Green Party's success. This system is literally designed to prevent the very existence of something like the Green Party. And the fact that we're still here and the only party on the left that can represent a genuine mass movement. I want to tell you something, folks. Please stop wasting your time, energy, and votes on corporate Democrats and invest your vote and your time and psychic and social change energy into a movement that the Green Party represents. I, I want to circle back to Howie because Charity had written in to say, I really wish I could vote for you, Howie. I love how you are both interesting and informing, informative as an experienced green activist, uh, uh, Charity says that she's in California. So she's sending you some love, uh, I, uh, or they are. Uh, and then Shane writes in with, the, I think, a really enticing question. Shane asks, both in terms of rhetoric and possible policy decisions, in what ways do you think the Green Party can break through the language being thrown at us as spoilers, et cetera, and appeal to a more broader independent voting base? Well, my answer to that question often is uh, you're spoiling the election, split in the vote. I say, no, we're improving the election. We bring real <laughs> issues to the table and force the whole debate around our issues. We often set the agenda because we got real policies we're proposing, whereas the major party candidates are trying their hardest not to commit to anything so they don't alienate funders or voters who might not agree with them. We know where we stand. We want real solutions to our problems, not, you know, rhetoric about we should have more jobs and, you know, better schools. We say how we're going to get those things. And I can tell you right here in this congressional district, 
Uh, we've run, I ran one time, Ursula Rosen, a Green here in Syracuse, ran another time for Congress. And, of course, when we ran, the Democrats freaked out, oh, you're going to split the vote and our guy will lose. No, the only time the Democrats have won in this district, except for one anti-war candidate at the height of the Vietnam War movement, was when the Greens ran a candidate. And that's because we forced the Democrat to actually move our way so he didn't lose votes on his left flank, because without us, he'd have kept moving to the right. And the Republicans here are pretty far to the right. And uh, when we're in there, the Democrat gets a better position because they got to deal with our issues, and the Republican looks like the extremist. So we improve elections. And the idea that we're spoiling them is absurd. And the fact is, uh, just because... The Greens got some votes doesn't mean those votes would have gone to the Democrats. You know, in 2016, it wasn't people that switched from Obama to Trump that made the difference. It was the people that switched from, first of all, Obama to nobody because they didn't like Clinton or Trump. The next biggest group was they voted third party, Jill Stein and the Green Party. Libertarians got their share. And then a very tiny group switched from uh, Obama to Trump. And a lot of them regret it now. But the point is that we didn't. Uh, caused the difference. We didn't spoil the election. It was the Democrats didn't have a good enough candidate, didn't appeal to those people's concerns. And I will also say this. I mean, the voting system is usually problematic if just the if if participation is, quote, spoiling an election, uh, then you have to at least acknowledge the stench of a voting system. It's forcing people to make those calculations. Howie Hawkins, the time has just flown by. I do want to give you a chance for any final thoughts to share with viewers and listeners. Well, we, we can use all the help we can get. If you go to my website, HowieHawkins.org, you can find out more about the policies we're proposing. You can follow the news coverage. You can go to the donate page and, and give us a little money. Um, and if you go to the volunteer page, uh, even if you're out of state, we can hook you up to do phone banking and so forth. But particularly if you're in state, you know, we got to talk to the voters on the street, get them literature and get their contact information so we can stay in touch. Uh, there's plenty of uh, things we can do. And, you know, I'm just one guy here trying to give voice to our movement, but I can only go as far as all of us take us. So uh, if people want to help out, I hope they'll go to the webpage, HowieHawkins.org, and see what they can do. Howie Hawkins, thank you so much for being a guest here on A Greenway forward. I also want to thank you for your lifetime of social change efforts, uh, not only on behalf of the Green Party, but broadly on the social movement issues, uh, environmental issues, racial justice issues. Also want to thank executive producer Michael O'Neill, who continues to do this work as an unpaid volunteer every week, making sure this program happens. And most importantly, I want to thank you, the viewer, listener, the participant of A Green Way Forward. Encourage you to go to the website, agreenwayforward.org. Sign up so you can get announcements about the upcoming guests that we'll have. You can also download the podcast. Remember that you can and should share this on all the Facebook pages that you have, your own personal page and any other groups you're part of. Share that podcast with others because with a hat tip to Gil Scott Heron, we'll remember the revolution may not be televised, but it can be brought to you by ordinary people using every medium possible. And invite you to tune in next week where we'll be joined by Sue Emery of the Anti-Monsanto, Anti-GMO Action Committee to talk about the work uh, that they're doing. In the meantime, keep on keeping on. Peace. 
A Green Way Forward is produced by David Cobb and Michael O'Neill. Go to agreenwayforward.org for links to our podcast feed and iTunes subscription, plus more ways to listen. Our live stream is graciously hosted by the official Dr. Jill Stein Facebook page on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The music for this episode is Keep Sit Real by Player 2, available under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.